Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. We're rounding home in our vision casting series. And over the past few months, we've been sketching a picture of our church in 10 years. And like a tree, Hope 2031 has six branches. We've talked about the intersection of faith and work as a branch. We've talked about the cultivation of emotional health as a branch. We've talked about the initiation of redemptive hospitality, the connection of campus and church, the mission of every member, And last week, we set the table for this last branch that we're talking about. And that is that we will be a church that embraces and embodies the whole gospel. The good news of Jesus, in other words, doesn't just impact our vertical relationship with God, but our horizontal relationships as well. We don't just accept Jesus into our hearts. We accept Jesus into all of life. Last week, we saw that the repair of Jesus, and this is important, the repair of Jesus must be as expansive as the destruction of sin. I'll say that again. The repair of Jesus must be as expansive as the destruction of sin. This is the holistic gospel. And we sing about this holistic gospel Every Christmas when we sing joy to the world, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow where? Far as the curse is found. And so we want to always ask as a church three questions. Where are there thorns? Number two, what is the master gardener doing? To fix these thorns, to clip them, to uproot them. And then number three, how are we as his church called to participate with the master gardener as his apprentice gardeners? Those are the three questions we want to ask. Now, when you start asking these questions, I think our church tradition is really good at tending thorns that relate to our vertical relationship to God. Things like guilt, things like shame, things like anxiety. And we're good at noticing, therefore, how Jesus as master gardener tends, removes, fixes, uproots these unique personal thorns. But we are not as good at tending to the horizontal thorns. Thorns like injustice, thorns like racism, thorns like institutional harm. But it turns out that God has a lot to say about it in his word. A lot to say. It's just that our tradition hasn't listened well. And I think this is in part because we have not been forced by circumstances to listen well to what God has to say in these areas. Generally speaking, the reformed tradition in America in which our tradition stands has not attuned their eyes or their ears 
to what God has to say on these issues because they have not had to. They have been shielded historically from these thorns. And to be totally frank, this is also because our church tradition in America has been complicit in cultivating these thorns. Instead of rooting them out, we have cultivated them. Our denomination, for instance, has lately been owning and repenting of our unique history in America in various ways. When we should have been clipping these harmful thorns from God's garden with the master garden, we've been helping them grow. So if we want to be a church that embraces and embodies the whole gospel for the whole of life, this means we're going to ask God to open our eyes and ears to what he has to say, especially in these areas. And so we will talk about God's heart for justice and mercy in the coming weeks. But first, and deeply related to this, we're going to talk about what Connie Anderson calls discipleship in God's multi-ethnic kingdom. The kingdom of God is multi-ethnic. And so what does this mean for the church? And what does this mean for hope? What does this mean for the church? And what does this mean for hope? And so to answer this, we will look at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But before we dig into Acts chapter 2, let me just confess that your pastor, me, is still learning and has much to learn in this area. And so all of what I say this Sunday and in coming weeks is not innovation. It's what I would call curation. It's curation. I am curating for you the hard-won observations of others. And so if any of this is helpful to you personally, if any of this is helpful to us as a church, I get no credit. I'm just sharing what I've learned. And so let's just look at Acts chapter 2. And I'll read and you can follow along. We'll start in in verse 1. This is God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own language, native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking, saying, They are filled with new wine. Let's just pray briefly before we dig in. Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts, 
this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. And as we look at your Pentecost, Holy Spirit, would you, uh, would you uh, bring your, your empowering presence to this time so that we would encounter you, Jesus, by the Spirit. And that, Lord, you would open our hearts to what you have to say this morning and make us receptive where we are hardened. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this past week, I missed two meetings. And if you were part of those meetings, I'm sorry. (laughs) And you know who you are. Uh, And not because I forgot to rely on my calendar, but actually because I relied on my calendar too much. (laughs) So uh, I had punched in the wrong time in my calendar on my phone. And so I woke up, I checked my calendar for the day. I saw the meeting, I saw the time. And I didn't think anything of it until I was late. And see, if I, if I thought about the time, I would have noticed that the times were off. But my brain was on autopilot, and that's the habit that I was in, looking at my phone and just autopilot showing up when it said to show up. And this reminds me of driving with GPS. Can any of you, any of you relate to this? You used to know how to get around town, but now you don't. Why? Because you rely on your GPS. I don't think about directions anymore. I plug the address in my phone and I drive. So if my GPS took me on a one-hour detour to get to a place that's 10 minutes away, I probably wouldn't know. That's the reality. Why? I'm in the habit, the habit of looking at my phone. And this habit, it works fantastic if my phone is right, if it's correct. It's a disaster if my phone is off. It makes me late or lost or worse. See, that's what habits do. They help us and they harm us. And in both cases, they are very hard to see. Now, individuals have habits and so do institutions. So for instance, every family has habits. Every family has unseen and unspoken habits. How we use money, how we use screens, how we talk to one another, how we do our days off, how we go to bed, when we wake up, how we eat, when we eat, where we eat, what we eat. And if this is true of families, it's also true of church families. Of course it is. I learned this from Rich Villadas, a pastor in Brooklyn. He explains that just as families have generational habits that go largely unnoticed, so do church families. Some church families have helpful habits. For instance, at Hope, one of my favorite habits is the benediction. Uh, This shapes us into the kind of people who are receptive to God's word, who are sent by God's grace into the world. And I believe this little five-second habit shapes you. It changes you from the inside out. This, like if you've been with us at home uh, for the whole, since the beginning, you have received nearly 600 benedictions. And that shapes you. That habit has shaped you. Another habit I love about our church is how much we talk to one another during the passing of peace. I just love that habit. Some of you may be like, I didn't know that was a habit. I grew up in a church that had passing of peace. There was no talking. <laughs> so it's a habit. It's a habit. But other church family habits are not as helpful, are they? 
Uh, this was the root cause, frankly, of the Protestant Reformation. If you think about it, believers in the 16th century in Europe were looking at some of their unexamined habits and asking if they're in line with God's word and asking if they're in line with God's heart. And they noticed, and when they noticed, that some of their habits were actually far from God's heart, they did the hard work of changing those habits. But they hadn't noticed those habits first. And so Rich Villadas in his church is comprised of 70 different nationalities. And he's helped me see that some of our most invisible habits as a church family are related to ethnicity and race. He calls these racial habits. And he challenges church families to step back and to notice their racial habits as a church family. And I welcome this challenge. Because since day one, I've always desired that hope reflect God's multi-ethnic kingdom. And this is a key part of our 2031 vision. But over the years, I've discovered that this doesn't just happen with good intentions. Deeper work must be done. And Villadas helps me see that this work begins by examining our unseen habits. A key part of our vision is that we want hope to be a church that is miraculously cross-cultural. And I say cross-cultural instead of diverse because many have pointed out that a church can pursue diversity and even achieve diversity but remain monocultural. Let me say that again. Folks have pointed out that a church can pursue diversity and even achieve diversity but remain monocultural. And the monoculture of the church is usually the dominant culture. But I hope we want to be cross-cultural, not monocultural. And to achieve this, we need to allow God to examine and reform our habits and others as well who might see them better than we do. And the best place to start this exploration is God's authoritative word. And so this morning, we are looking at Pentecost. Now, the global church celebrated Pentecost Sunday last Sunday. So we're like a step off of the rest of the world with this. But I would love to take a deeper look at this event of Pentecost uh, this Sunday. Because here we see the sort of first church, right? The first church gathering, the Christian church gathering. God's people have always gathered, but under Christ and with the Holy Spirit, we see here that the first church is miraculously cross-cultural. Just look at all the cultures present in verse 9. Parthians and Medes and Alamites and residents of Mesopotamia, it says. Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And by the end of this chapter, friends, at the end of chapter 2, these folks had miraculous cross-cultural unity. Verse 44, what's it say? Can you see They were sharing all things in common. This very first church 
was miraculously cross-cultural. But how did this happen? The short answer, this is the Sunday school answer. The answer is all answers. You know this, right? God, okay? And specifically God, the Holy Spirit. That's what Pentecost is about. Some theologians have called Pentecost Incarnation Part 2. Incarnation Part 2. Because what's the incarnation? The incarnation is God coming to us in God the Son. The Pentecost is God coming to us in God the Spirit. And notice two things in verses 1 through 4 of Acts chapter 2. The wind and fire. Like if you think this is a lot of wind out here this morning, what's going on here in verses 1 through 4? There's something like a tornado that they're experiencing. And wind, the same word in both Hebrew and Greek, is the word for spirit. So God's doing something. He's showing them something. And in in John's gospel, Jesus compares the spirit to the wind. He's like, just like you see these trees moving, but don't see the wind, so also God among you, the Holy Spirit. And then think of the fire. There's fire in this in this Pentecost. And in the Bible, what did God do with fire? He demonstrated His presence, His empowering presence through fire. Think of the burning bush. Think of fire on the mountain in Exodus. Wind and fire is the sure presence of God. Isaiah 66, 15. Behold, the Lord will come in fire in His chariots like the whirlwind. So in Pentecost, God gives us what? His empowering presence as a church. He comes to us and not the other way around. Incarnation, part two. The whole Bible actually could be summarized as one giant arrow pointing down. God comes to us in our sin, in our division, in our issues. That's that's the gospel. But why does God do this? And in Pentecost, why is he doing this? To create a miraculous community. And in two ways, a miraculous community with his blessing. So I just want to talk about that first. In the Pentecost, God comes not to curse, but to bless. He creates a miraculous community with his miraculous blessing. This is a whirlwind and a fire, right? But the wind and the fire don't destroy It produces glad hearts, deep worship. If you look at verse 41, it produces church growth. And then in verses 42 to 47, we see this amazing picture of community. We see awe. We see fellowship. We see devotion. We see community. We see glad and generous hearts, it says. We see favor with the people, i.e., they're on mission. They're not just in an enclave. They're out and about, and they have favor with, with, with the people. And there's salvation, not just favor with the people. People are like, who are you following? Who is your God? So in Pentecost, God comes down to bless this miraculous community. It's amazing because the last time all the nations are gathered like this in the Bible. God came down in judgment. See, in order to understand Pentecost fully, we need to understand what happened at Babel. At Babel. Many point out that Pentecost is a reversal of Babel. 
In the Old Testament, humanity tries to build a stairway to God. The Tower of Babel. And in the story, despite all their building and grandiosity and pride, God must still come down. That's the joke. God comes down despite their building up. And He does so to curse them for their pride. But in Pentecost, as one pastor points out, God comes down not to judge, but to bless His people. It's a reversal of of Babel. And so, Pentecost is a miraculous community of God's blessing. But secondly, it's not the only reversal. Remember, at at Babel, the end result of our pride is a divided tongue, a divided humanity. But in Pentecost, the end result is a miraculous cross-cultural unity. So God comes down to give us his blessing But God also comes down to give us a cross-cultural unity, a miraculous community in that respect. So as I said, in verses 9 through 11, we're given a long list of nations. These are folks from all over, modern-day Iran, Judea, uh, Judea, Turkey, the Aegean coast of modern-day Turkey, North Africa, Rome, Crete, Arabia. And with these locations comes different cultures. And important to Pentecost very different languages and dialects. But notice what happens when God shows up. What happens? The Spirit is poured out and enables them to speak each other's languages miraculously. In verse 4 of chapter 2, it says they spoke in others' tongues. So the astonishing thing about this reversal of Babel is shown in verse 8 that these other tongues were known languages and multiple known languages. Languages of the people who were present so that they could say, I'm hearing my language from someone who's not from my country. That's the miracle of Pentecost. The miracle of Pentecost is not some third angelic language that they're all able to speak together and understand together. God could have achieved unity that way amongst all these folks by erasing their different cultural tongue, right? And giving them one neutral tongue. But instead, He achieves this miraculous unity among His people by preserving and even dignifying their cultural difference. I love that. In other words, God the Spirit doesn't smooth over difference to get unity. Because that would be cheap unity. And neither should we. So, recently I heard Pastor Abraham Cho speak on this theme. And I'd like to share what I learned from him. I'll just summarize what I learned from him with you, actually. So first, he points out that God's creational design is, and this is going to be an important phrase, so hang on to it. His creational design is interdependent difference. Interdependent difference. That's so good. 
That's absolutely what we see in Pentecost. But here's the thing. Pentecost is not something brand new. It's a renewal of God's original design. Interdependent difference. On the one hand, in Genesis 1, God creates a world full of differences. Water and land, male and female. But on the other hand, these differences are meant to be interdependent. So kids, interdependent means like leaning on one another and, and, and sort of um, kind of enveloping one another, yet remaining distinct. Like what my hands are doing right now. Difference and interdependence is the picture in Genesis 1. And this makes sense because God is himself interdependent difference. We don't worship a God who's just sort of a, a, like a blob, right? We worship one God, three persons. That's a mystery. It's called the mystery of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity envelops one another without eliminating one another. That's the mystery of the Trinity. And all throughout church history, we've tried to come up with ways to describe this mystery that we see just so plainly in Scripture, but we have so much difficulty understanding with our mind. And so we come up with different ways of talking about it. But the point is, the God we serve is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The God we serve is three persons. One God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, interdependent difference. So doesn't it make sense that he made his world and his people to reflect himself? Second, Abraham Cho points out that sin fractures this interdependent difference. So that instead we have what he calls sameness and separation. So instead of difference... We have sameness. So Adam and Eve want to become like God in the garden. Instead of interdependence, we have separation. Adam and Eve, meant for interdependence, separate and hide in their shame. But God does what? He seeks to restore his creation and his people back to himself to interdependent difference, which helps us understand events like Pentecost. And in the coming weeks, we're going to look at Galatians 2. We're going to look at Revelation 7, where we are all heading as a church. But at Pentecost this morning, we see a beautiful picture of interdependent difference. Each different nation not shelving their cultural distinctions, but expressing them in this reversal of Babel in interdependence with one another. Worshiping God with one another. Prophesying to each other. Proclaiming the glories of God in each other's languages. That is a beautiful picture of the triune life. Isn't it? Erwin Ince, he calls this interdependent difference God's beautiful community. God himself is a beautiful community of interdependent difference. And we believe he's calling all of his churches to be the same, including hope. And this means a few things for us, friends, okay? I think to go back to the habits thing, this means that we will need to examine our invisible habits our unchecked habits, the things that we do that we're not maybe aware of. What are our 
like our family habits, Hope? That's the question I want to ask. And do they align with this vision of interdependent difference or not? Cho, Abraham Cho, he says that most churches settle for less than interdependent difference in two ways. The first way is settling for separation. This is when we have sort of a high awareness of cultural difference. And it's such a high awareness and sensitivity to difference that we agree to just live and worship separately because it's easier that way. Less conflict, less messiness. And it's less costly when it comes to losing our preferences, especially for dominant culture. The second way isn't separation, but assimilation, he says. This is when we have a desire for interdependence. We have a desire for community and life together. And we love diversity. But to achieve diversity, we ask everybody to assimilate to one culture. In this assimilation church, family may pursue diversity, but its habits will remain monocultural. But Pentecost shows us a different way, doesn't it? Here we see that ethnic difference is not blunted by the Spirit. Everybody brings their culture to the table of the Lord. And each ethnicity is miraculously brought together into worship and into community. And so what are our church family habits, friends? What are they? What do we do or not do that might be reinforcing separation or assimilation in the body of Christ? And if cultural habits are largely invisible, what that means is that we need to listen well to anyone who can help us see our bad habits. So that's the first step. It's a a season of observation and conversation. But then what do we do? We need to ask God to shape us into a community of interdependent difference. And to do this, we actually need to rebuild what we do and how we do church together. So Abraham Cho, again, he shares a story of giraffes who are master builders. And these giraffes are master builders of homes. But when they invite elephants into their homes, no matter how kind they are, no matter how hospitable they are, these giraffes may be the most hospitable people in the world. But these elephants cannot live there. They can't get comfortable there. And so what needs to happen? The giraffes need to rebuild their homes for both. And include the elephants in the creation process. So I thought of my house when I heard this story, which apparently was not built with tall people in mind. I'm reminded of this every time I go down my steps. I walk like this down my steps, like I sidestep down them like this. And tall people will continually hit their head on the steps at my house. Until and unless it's rebuilt with the help of tall people, you know? In the same way, the church must always be asking who's hitting their head in our house. And can we rebuild it 
So they have a place here. We pursue this because we're a Pentecost people. A community who stands together in Christ. So, Pentecost people marry cultural difference and interdependence in a beautiful way. Because that's the way God made us. And it's how God demonstrates his presence among us. So notice how this passage concludes, really. There are two responses, and both are absolutely shocking responses. One is explaining it away, saying these folks must be drunk. What's going on is humanly impossible, and therefore alcohol must be the explanation. Others ask, what does this mean? And that's the question that I want our church to evoke. I want folks to see our community be like, they're either drunk, like there's something going on in this community that sort of explains how this is miraculously cross-cultural. Or God, the God they serve is up to something. And that's exactly what we want. So N says, quote, the church's most powerful witness to the world that Jesus is real isn't signs and wonders like miraculous healings. No, it's the supernatural life of God's people united in beautiful, diverse community. The world should look at the world in amazement and wonder and say, how did that happen? How did people with such difference come together in spite of their difficulty? And that's our vision. We believe God for it, and so let's pray that he will indeed do this for our church. So, Lord, we do ask that you would indeed make us into your beautiful community as well. Lord, we have a lot of work to do, but would we start by examining our habits and asking you and others how we could indeed reshape those habits so that we are closer to this image of this Babel reversed, this Pentecost Sunday. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.